Danny, welcome to the RT Rugby Podcast after European action from the weekend. Munster fall to Toulouse, Leinster win without having to play rugby and the show goes on this weekend. Plenty to talk about. I'm delighted to be joined by Donald Lennon, Bernard Jackman, Wes Liddy and Fiona Coughlin this weekend as the Irish Women's Six Nations campaign launches on Saturday away to Wales. Um, look, guys, you're all very welcome. Donald, I guess we'll start off with, with Munster uh, on Saturday. I, it's, it's a funny one. Look, you know, we all had our view last week about the manner in which they lost to Leinster in the Pro 14. And yet they went out on Saturday and I thought they played really, really well, Donald, but just succumbed to a very strong Toulouse side who emptied the bench and scored two late tries to perhaps flatter them on the scoreline. Disappointing for Munster, but uh, I guess the better side won on the day. Yeah, no question about that. Uh, I agree with you. I mean, it was I was lucky enough to be there. Um, it's actually, you know, while it's hugely disappointing on those big European days to, um, you know, to have nobody there. And, and, and ironically, Munster and all of you who have been in Thoman Park for the big European days, you'll know how Munster, they sign off their warm-up by starting a, a, lap, a half lap of the field on the far side as they work their way over towards the dressing room. And uh, the crowd just really, that's the, the last signal to the crowd that they're going into the dressing room. The place becomes alive. To see them do that in absolute silence, it kind of, you know, put everything into context. Um, that said, uh, I thought it was a really good game, uh, but you were left scratching your head as to where was the performance seven days earlier when it was really needed. So from that point of view, it was quite frustrating. Uh, Toulouse, you know, they're so talented, even though they were short a number of first-choice players. The thing for me, and I think... It's something just watching over the course of the whole weekend. You watch all the French sides. Their ability to play out of the tackle, their offloading, the skill levels. And it isn't just the backs. I mean, there was one passage of play for um, Toulouse when uh, Cyril Bay, uh, Julien Marchand, what a hooker he is, um, uh, a cross in the back row. Uh, and, and Joe Tukori when he came on. Just massive men, but incredibly soft hands and the ability to play other players through the hole. I mean, that that for me was was the highlight of the game. Um, they're just a very skillful side. And to be fair, I think they're, they're a bit more resilience about them than certainly the Toulouse teams that arrived. They got hockeyed in, in two quarterfinals in a row uh, in Thoman Park. Um, I mean, the bottom line, every time Munster scored, they came back and scored either three or five points within three or four minutes. And that showed their class, even though I'm not overly convinced that they're quite good enough yet to go on and win the tournament. They'll be, they'll be there or thereabouts. I think they'll, uh, they'll get to the semi-final. But, um, you know, I suppose when you get to that stage of this competition, the margin between the teams is, is very little. So overall, I thought, brilliant game. Pity there was nobody there to watch it. Uh, but, you know, frustrating in that at least... You know, if Leinster had beaten Munster the previous week with Munster playing at that level, so be it. Yeah, and I don't think many people, Bernard, saw the Munster performance coming, you know, because they did play really well for large parts of the game. I think just the strength and depth that Toulouse had in the end took its toll on Munster. I guess the impact that the Toulouse bench had versus the impact that the Munster bench had as well. And it's a kind of a bit of a head-scratcher because they were so poor the previous weekend and then they go out and played pretty well, albeit on the losing the end of the scoreboard as well. So it's a bit of a strange one. <laughs> yeah, it is. And but I, I think Toulouse defend Toulouse defence isn't as uh, anywhere near as strong as as Leinster is or 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 Exeter to, to that matter. They they're very good with, with the ball. And I think 
Munster certainly exposed them early, and it was good to see Munster, you know, playing with a little bit more ambition, playing with more speed. Um, having said that, I thought I thought they went back to type a little bit in the second half, um, and I, and I also I, I think you know Toulouse have an extra gear that Munster just don't have um, at, at the moment, and I would agree with Don. I, I think Toulouse, I wouldn't have them in the top three in terms of likely winners. Um, you know, for me, it's Racing, Exeter, Leinster, uh, but they are a very, very strong side. Is, is that based on their defence mostly, Birch? Yeah, just they concede points too easily. You know, and uh, they drift in and out of, of games. Um, the previous week against Montpellier, I look back at it and okay, it was a week before a Champions Cup game. Um, but yeah, there's there's definitely concentration issues there with them. Um, so yeah, look at it, it was it was a f- phenomenal game. To lose our joy to watch, in fairness, that's that's something you couldn't hold against them. And, and for me, the biggest thing about the weekend was uh, how attacking rugby is back. You know, defence coaches must be turned their hair out because, um, you know, the lowest scoring game at the weekend was La Rochelle Gloucester on Friday night, which was uh, 43 points. And, and that felt like an open game. Um, the rest of the game, Scarlet 71 points, uh, Bordeaux 53, Racing 56, Exeter 73 like really good attacking rugby and it shows that the, the trend of the game now a year ago was team of kicks most wins um certainly at european level um we'll see if, it, if it's uh, valid for international level european level playing with ambition keeping the ball alive um seems to be the way forward and probably maybe in ireland we're a little bit behind the the curve there the french seem to have grasp this a little bit earlier than we have. Um, now, we'll see Leinster didn't play, so it's hard to judge them. And certainly the way they played against Munster the first half, you would have thought, you know, they have the tools to do that. But that's a good thing from a, from a rugby fan point of view, that attacking rugby's back in vogue. And maybe these law changes around the breakdown have actually worked. You know, it took a while, but um, now it pays to keep the ball in hand. There you go, Wes. That solves the problem. So, like, forget this 50-20-20 rule or changing the laws around the breakdown. Sack all the defence coaches now and rugby union is saved. What do you reckon? Yeah, it, it does definitely seem to have taken a little uh, twist in the last, certainly in the last few months in terms of the attacking game becoming prioritised again. I mean, I'd agree with the lads on both Munster and Toulouse in terms of, like, it almost highlights Munster's performance last week against Leinster for me and that you, you kind of just question where exactly was their head at, just in terms of the intent they came out to play with. I did hear from a few people I was speaking to that they they went away from a lot of what they had been doing throughout the season um, in the lead-up to Leinster and almost tried to come up with something new uh, specifically for Leinster, whereas they kind of went back to what had worked for them throughout the Pro 14 season in the lead-up to this game. So I think that alone kind of points to Leinster being uh, occupying a, a strong place in their head. But um, Toulouse, I think they're, they've rediscovered themselves from, from, from back in the day uh, and in, in, the, in the bad ways as well as the good. And that I find them incredibly infuriating at times because there's so much individual talent that you kind of be saying, geez, if you were just 2% more pragmatic at times, you'd be unbeatable. Um, and you would think players like like Kaino and, and Carmina and that, like as, as brilliant a player as Kaino has been, you would think at 38, guys like that are maybe going to get caught for, lugs, uh, for, for legs or for lungs by a team like Leinster before the season is out. But just like to be the 500 person to comment on it, um, 
just think DuPont is just fascinating to watch at the minute, even when he's not that effective. Um, I was saying to Birch the weekend, like, I can't think of any player who has a strike rate for try scoring like him since, I don't know, maybe Joe Rakakoko, mm. um, maybe Lomu before that. But I mean, it's like he's 84 kilos. His power and ability to stand up and tackle, play the ball off is just incredible. Like, it almost defies physics. And just watching him and how alert he is, how he's able to improvise on the hoof. Like, I almost wonder, do teams need to start man-marking these uh, support lines of his? Do you designate a player to pick up his trail runs? Um, because it's it's just like every game he, he's doing is it's just incredible to watch. I think he's destined to be the best player in the world, one of the best players in the world for a long time to come. If he isn't already, Fiona, I have to say, like watching him in the flesh there and watching the lines that he runs... Uh, you know, first of all, his work level is just off the scale. He never stops, you know, never stops. And what fascinated me as well was the amount of work that he does that doesn't end up with him getting the ball is just amazing. And there probably isn't a better player in the world right now than Anton Dupont. Yeah, he's phenomenal. And it's been consistent for the last two years as well, whether it be at international level or, or back with club. And I love the fact that he's so small and he's still standing up against these bigger players and he's shown them up and... I've no doubt that teams try to mark him out of the game, but he's just that good that he finds that, those positions and those trail lines. Um, you know, he just comes from nowhere and he's consistently there. Uh, and I, he's, what's he, 23? So he's so many years to come. And how, how much better can he even get again with, with even more game time and, and those players around him? But it's, it's his ability to bring other players into the game as well. Um, as a scrum half and as you said he's consistently throughout the game his tempo um, to keep going yeah he's he's phenomenal he's brilliant and Donald you know just to, before we move on from Toulouse and we will in a second um, Entomac at fly half as well just really caught the eye you know a couple of high balls that he took dropping back into the pocket where Munster kicked the ball Toulouse obviously had had marshaled the fact that, that Conor Murray would kick the ball an awful lot and he did, and the kicks weren't bad. Actually, Conor Murray had quite a good game, I thought. But Entomac, alongside Dupont, France have the makings of probably one of the best halfback combinations potentially in the world for the next few years with those two guys. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. And, um, you know, they've invested a huge amount in it. They put them together um, uh, two years ago now, and they're still comparatively young. They put them together as a halfback pairing for France before Toulouse had faith enough in Entomac to play him at uh, 10. They played him a lot at 12 and, and Zach Holmes at 10 during that period. Uh, but I think, i tell you what it highlighted for me on Saturday, being there, uh, was just how good a rugby player Entomac is. Um, as you highlighted, I mean, I think you could, he's obviously played in, in midfield for, for Toulouse. Uh, you could play him at fullback, no question about that. His aerial ability was brilliant. But not only that, I think his capacity to identify space early, he's brilliant feet, and he's actually incredibly pacing. Um, now, saying all that, there's a debate, is he the best number 10 in France? I mean, Mathieu Jalabert, I think, who uh, got his opportunity when Intermac was out of the opening games in the Six Nations, I thought grasped it with both hands. And if both were available, I would be thinking maybe they'd be going more towards Jalabert. Um, but, you know, that's a great problem for the French to have. The other player I want to mention when you're talking about world-class, X-factor, and again, um, maybe it's because there's nobody in the in the stadium and you can hear everything, but, you know, again, watching Cheslin Colby up, for, uh, you know, up close, he's a phenomenal player. Now, we would have seen him in the World Cup for South Africa. You're not quite as close to the action 
you know, in the big stadium out there as, as we were last weekend. Um, he's actually way stronger than you think. A bit like Dupont, he's he's incredibly strong upper body. He's uh, a big thighs in him, but it's just his feet. I mean, early on, he had a one on one with Gavin Coombs, yeah. and he just he just left him for dead. Coombs was almost as if he had an invisible switch, and Coombs was left there with his hands out, wondering where did he go to. <laughs> he did the same to Keith Earls. Um, then. When uh, Maxime Medard ran out of petrol, they put him back at full back. And he was actually more effective as a broken field runner. I mean, you dared and kick to him. Uh, he was the guy who gave the, the, the scoring pass for uh, Labelle. Um, or, sorry, the trailing pass inside. Uh, so, I mean, they're just two X-factor players that they have in their back line. Um, they're just, you know, star quality, well worth uh, being able to see these guys in the flesh and and ironically as Fiona said um, like Colby is probably the same size as Dupont so two of the most effective players on the field were probably the two smallest guys yeah absolutely and, and just in terms of the French club Birch, um, I, you know I don't think we've had as many French clubs in the knockout stages this round I know it's a different season we had last 16 in the quarterfinals but certainly French club rugby seems to be on an upward curve is that your reading of it? Oh, massively, yeah. They've they've solved so many of the issues. We've we've spoken about it a little bit in terms of how it's affected the national team. Um, but realistically, it's come from bottom up, and now it's going back uh, from top down. And and clubs like you know Bordeaux, you know beating Bristol is 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 no mean feat. Um, and they won quite convincingly, thirty six seventeen. Um, full of young French players. Uh, who some are playing for France, some will go on to play for France, and then. You know, topped up with some you know seasoned foreign players, guys like Scott Higginbottom, uh, uh, for example. Um, you know, just holding the team together, giving them experience. And as Wesley mentioned, like Kino, I mean, it's amazing how some of these French clubs have been able to get you know top end world class players like Kino still fit, performing. Um, Joe Decorey is thirty eight. You know, think back to the Toulon team with Backy's Boat and Simon Shaw, etc. They seem to manage them well and and really be able to hold on to that experience. Um, but now the beauty of it is they're they're actually not surrounding them by more old foreign players. They're surrounding them by by young French players who have no fear. And um, yeah, they're they're in a very strong uh, place. You know, La Rochelle, Rogers, La Rochelle looked great. Um, it looked like they had the easy side of the draw and a sale on on Sunday. The way they put away Scarlets, you know, they look like they're they're pretty strong. Um, it's uh, yeah, there's a lot of strength and depth there, and in the Challenge Cup as well. So look at French mm-hmm. rugby's got their act together, and um, we all said when they do, it'll be it'll be anonymous for everyone else. So let's see if we can if we can uh, catch up again. Do you, I just want to have you on this? Do you have any sympathy for Toulon on Friday night, Birch, with with the manner in which um, the game was cancelled. They had a player test positive in the squad. It didn't travel. The squad came over. They were all tested on Thursday. All came back negative. But because there were deemed to be close contacts of a front row player yeah. who was the original positive test, the game, uh, at the behest of the Irish government, we should say, was was called off. Do you have sympathy for Toulon? They're not, they're not happy about this at all. And they're actually threatening now that they might not compete in Europe again. I don't know how seriously we can take that. But do you have any sympathy for them? I do have sympathy for them. I think, and I'd have sympathy for any club, you know, who loses a place in, in Europe based around um, a COVID outbreak. And, um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, but every club is on, a, is on tender hooks. And, you know, it could be, it could be Leinster this week. It could be, uh, um, you know, Claremont, uh, Claremont next week. It's just, 
it's just that's how that's the way it is. And I think you know, realistically, I would have said ERC probably should have um, you know, got the medical people together on Thursday. Um, I think that's Toulon's biggest issue is that they were allowed travel um and um effectively then they were pulled, you know, the day of the game. Um in, in hindsight, in hindsight's great, but I think they could have made that call once they knew it was it was a front row player and once they um ascertained that there was close contacts, they were never going to be able to find, you know, four or five new front rows who were qualified, fit um, and eligible. So um, I think the decision should have been made the day before. But look, at, to give the ERC some credit, you know, they're finding their feet at this as well. And it's everybody's uh, crisis management um, on the hoof. And uh, it's unfortunate, but look, at it's, I don't think they'll, they did, you know, <laughs> Sergio Prise wanted the, the other French players to, to go on strike and not play the weekend. That didn't get uh, <laughs> here. And look, at I think the Toulon president, he calmed down. I mean, you can't fight this. This is a great competition, and uh, um, it's it's very unfortunate. But I think it's it's something it's something that's just part of, of of the the environment at the moment. And yeah, they'll get over it and they'll move on. Yeah, but the alternative ways is that we don't have a competition. I mean, if you, you know, and the greater good is that sometimes teams, because of the pandemic and because of the situation we find themselves, are going to be inconvenienced seriously. In this case, in the case of Toulon, but it's that. And we have these rules in place, or the competition does not go ahead. So it's 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 pretty. Yeah, much- I mean, in fairness, though, the, like I think the problem was that there was stuff left open for interpretation on a couple of at, at a couple of different junctures. First of all, they could have called it on Wednesday as soon as the case was there. Don't travel; game's yeah. not happening. Second of all, they then offered to play on the Sunday, providing they brought in six new front rows. But at that point you would have passed this three-day incubation period. So surely if you tested everyone again on Sunday and everyone was negative for a second time, maybe the need for the six new front rows isn't there. So I, I think, look, there's got to be plenty of people with scientific reasonings why the game shouldn't have been played and, and they're possibly right. But I think just leaving that wiggle room and kind of turning it into an open forum was was a mistake on the competition organizers behalf. And perhaps it hints at, you know, Toulon as one of the more vocal LNR clubs when, when the tournament was kind of restructured a couple of years ago, it probably shows the hesitancy EPCR have in, in kind of handing down a veto on these things. And then the way that's exploited. And as Bart said, it is a brilliant competition, but it's always going to be, I don't know there's always going to be a little hesitancy towards it while you have the feeling teams aren't treating it with 100% respect. But it's um, good. It, isn't it good? It's good for, from a French perspective that the French clubs are doing well now. And we have, what do we have? Five in the quarterfinals this weekend? Because I always get the feeling, I, I, this is what I think you're maybe scratching at here, is that the French clubs don't take it as seriously as perhaps the Irish provinces do where Europe is to be all and end all. But maybe French success towards the latter stages will kick into gear, I guess, a more of an affinity with the competition, more of a kind of a grow for the competition among the French sides, which we, which we need, like, we need that. You'd hope it would, but, I mean, it's... Like, that could be... That, the French success could be down to the fact that there's no crowds in stadiums when you consider how poor they are travelling at, at times. That could be a contributing factor. But equally, there does seem to be this generation of players, and not just the guys we've seen in the Six Nations, is the thing that struck me over the weekend. If you look at... at Jordan Joseph with, with Racing. You look at Labelle with Toulouse. 
you know, you look at guys like Macalau with Stade Francais, who we all saw a couple of years ago playing under 20s. You kind of look at these fellas and go, geez, how are they not in the French team every week? So there seems another layer of talent even beneath what they've exposed in, in this year and last year's Six Nations, which is incredible, really. I wouldn't be overly confident Leinster are going to beat uh, Exeter this weekend, Fiona, honestly. Um, no, and it's hard. To, it's going to be hard to tell where they're at. Some ways, you think, would that weekend rest do them good in the sense of sex and they'll be back to full fitness and the likes of that. But Exeter are bloody good. And um, you could see, particularly when they got into the 22, that they were relentless, pretty similar to the likes of Leinster as well. And um, it'll definitely be a huge battle from up front um, to put put Leinster, give them a good platform going forward. But yeah, like Leon got off to a good start. I think they were 14-0 up and then yeah. Exeter had to claw themselves back into the game. But it was certainly the forwards, like the likes of Hill and Ewers and stuff that took control of that game and, and put Exeter into a really good position. And, you know, they've got quality players at the back as well. The likes of Flaherty and stuff, if they can get the ball. So it's not going to be easy. And you look at Leinster squad, they have a huge number of players injured. I know their back row, they have a, an embarrassment of riches, but like the five back row players out injured. Um, Gary Ringrose is still a huge loss at 13. Whether O'Loughlin can fill that sufficiently enough against the likes of Exeter and going forward, I'm not sure. So they'll certainly be up against it. Just in terms of the picture of Europe as well, Donald, and I'm going to come back to Leinster in a minute. Uh, I was listening to Razi Rasmus here, and I, I'm just trying to kind of structure this question the way that I, I want it. But I was listening to Razi Rasmus speak during the week. He's been, he was on News Talk um, a couple of different occasions. He was quoted in newspapers as well about um, what he feels is the need for Ireland to develop players from within, to promote our own players. It goes back to the signing that we talked about that Munster made last week for South African imports coming in to maybe fill places that potentially could go to Irish players. And I'm looking at the layout this weekend, and Leinster are the sole. Irish survivors in the quarterfinals of the Champions Cup. Connacht were beaten in the Challenge Cup, obviously, as well. Um, they're gone. Munster are out. And I just wonder, is, is the picture that we're looking at this weekend, five French clubs, a couple of English, but Leinster sole survivors from Ireland, is that a reflection of where Irish rugby is at at the moment? And I, and like, I don't want to be too general about it. And obviously, you know, you can, you can argue both sides of the coin here. But mm. I just kind of wonder, really, is, is is the kind of upper hand in club rugby now the power switching towards uh, France predominantly with maybe English clubs getting stronger? And is this actually where Ireland is at at the moment, do you think? Yeah, I think it is. The, the, the simple answer to it, look, these things go on swings and roundabouts. I think you go back to maybe three or four years ago. Was there five teams from the, the Pro 14 were in Europe? There was only, I think, one English team at one yeah. stage. Uh, and you had two or three French. Uh, I think what we're seeing this season, and, and Jerry Flannery was quoted widely saying it, look, but I think we, we've, we've been watching the Pro 14 assiduously over the past number of months. The quality of the Pro 14 this season was rubbish. Let's be honest about it. Some of the games were a waste of time. Um, great to see some of our younger players getting exposed, but really they weren't tested to any great degree. So that, you know, when you, when you ask them then to get up to the next level and Europe, there is no comparison, certainly this season, the golf and class between playing some of the Pro 14 games and then jumping into what we're getting at European level is chalk and cheese. No comparison whatsoever. Um, I think it is no coincidence that the French have risen. You know, we've been talking about the, the, the mission that uh, Bernard Laporte has been on. Once France got the World Cup in 2023, everything has been geared towards uh, working 
towards a French team capable of winning that. For that to happen, you had they've started down at the well, I won't say the grassroots, but they've gone down to Pro 14, and, and Bernard would be more expert on this than me. But they've changed the ground rules as to who you can have in your match day 23, with the emphasis on getting less overseas players and more um, French-based players in that squad. You're seeing the benefit of that now. I mean, uh, uh, like of the five teams that are left in Europe, and and you know, I do have sympathy for Toulon. Um, Having said that, I think Leinster would have beaten them. So, you know, if you're being cruel about it, I don't think you're losing a team that were good enough to go on and win the Champions Cup. And I think we have to be cognizant of, look, as it, it could, if, if what happened to Toulon happened to Leinster, we'd all be up in arms over it. Um, because, and as well, obviously, they're a potential winner of the tournament. But if France were restricted to just picking their national team out of the five French teams that are in the, the, the quarterfinals, of the Champions Cup, they'd have some team. And the strength and depth that they are building, because a lot of those French players now are getting the opportunity that where they may have been blocked by overseas players three and four years ago. I mean, just going back to Toulouse, uh, they brought in uh, uh, Thibault Flamen and uh, Alban Placines off the bench. Mm. I hadn't heard of these guys before, but they were outstanding. The second row on a back row. So they, they have these fellas crawling out of the ground everywhere. Um, so I just at this point in time, I think French rugby is on a high. Um, you can see there's a confidence there maybe that hasn't been there before. I think there's also, um, finally, they've embraced things like uh, um, conditioning and nutrition, whereas they may have been a bit laissez-faire towards that before. They are now embracing all the things that everybody else maybe had an advantage over them in the past number of years. So I think uh, we're seeing the benefit of that. Um, and look, I, I think they're, they're just fantastic to watch. So if that's the standard that everybody else has to, to rise to, then brilliant, because they will. It'll be a rising tide and everybody will benefit. I, I was watching Gavin Coombs an awful lot as well on Saturday, Birch, and then after the game, talking to... Um, couple of lads on the way home who, who made the point why don't Munster just you know take someone like him who clearly has it uh, build a, a squad around the likes of him maybe you know Craig Casey coming through um, a few other young players that we mentioned last weekend as well and, and and let that be the kind of the new approach that Munster should take here rather than kind of signing this up. I know we talked about this last weekend but I thought watching Gavin Coons play as well as he did um, last week and, and how very little impact the Munster bench had and no disrespect to you know, JJ Hanron, who's gone, and obviously Billy Holland, who's at the end of his career, and a couple of others as well. But there needs to be a new wave of young talent coming through and young talent that gets a chance each week to actually play and develop their game so that they will be good enough at the very top level. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, we highlighted the Pete, there's a batch of young fellas there that have done everything to them. Um, now, a lot of them haven't had the opportunity to play you know, in, in knockout stages of Europe or, or Pro 14 finals, which Coombs has, and Coombs has, has shown that he, he he definitely looks like he has the ability to be a, a key member of Munster, of Munster's starting team for big games going, going forward. The reality is they need to find three or four more of those. That's the reality. I mean, obviously, then you have RG Simon coming back next year. Um, you know, he's going to add to it. Um, Joey having a lot more games will be a bonus, but they do need to find three or four more players and they're not going to be able to go out and recruit them from elsewhere. And I don't think that's the right thing to do. I think Munster needs to 
uh, keep its identity. In actual fact, maybe you need to double down on their identity a little bit and find homegrown players who can who can come in and make an impact that like the Coombs has. And, and you know, um, you know, K Casey, sorry, he, he's another fellow who has stepped up and 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 shown shown um, he can play in big games. Obviously, got capped for Ireland, um, but there's probably another batch underneath this that they need to come through and give them depth because. You know, it's as Donald mentioned. You know, Toulouse were able to bring players off the bench who aren't household names, who aren't internationals, but could start. You know, for the for other teams in this competition, and um, you would important to note though, Birch, that Toulouse were inspired by their uh, preparation in Tom Clifford Park on Friday afternoon. <laughs> and really several of the players them. have mentioned since they did credit. They did credit the. The pre-match training to, uh, to captain's run as part of their build-up. But look, at, uh, again, I would think, just to go back to Don's point, the reason um, you're seeing so many young French players now is obviously they put down the number of foreign players, but also you get rewarded financially for producing a foreign player. So if you can bring a player through your academy into your senior team, you get more money back every time he plays from the, from the federation. So he's worth more to you than a, than a standard French player. Plus, if he moves club, so uh, like Grenoble, you know, we got nearly a million euros selling players uh, when we needed money to, you know, selling players who came from our academy and, and the longer they've been in your academy and the more first team games they've played for you, the more their value is if another club signs them. So, and it's not if they're out of contract. Effectively, if you sign a young French player from another club, you got to pay the premium. So that's how they've done it. Now, Ireland's model is a little bit different, but we still should be very much geared towards, we need to find a way to uh, make it attractive for the four head coaches. Now, Leo does it anyway, um, but the, the head coaches to not be completely obsessed about the, the short-term results, um, but to be able to blood those young players. Because with four teams, um, you know, you look at France, as Donald said, you could pick you could pick a great French team for those five teams, but there's another there's another nine out there plus a pro D2. So we are limited a little bit in terms of you know how many teams we pick from. Uh, so there has to be there has to be some kind of a, um, incentive to to be, bring through young players. And you could say that you know, and that's something that New Foreign are if you need to work out, but uh, the Irish but the Irish system as well, Bart, isn't it isn't it quite restrictive even in and of itself? If you have say, 20 centrally contracted players, IRFU contracted players around Ireland. I mean, the, the head coaches are nearly almost obliged to pick them because these are the guys earning the top salary. And even the Irish coach is almost obliged to pick these guys, <coughs> taking all the top money, taking all the big salaries. And sometimes, irrespective of form or how actually well they're playing, they're going to get picked because, well, goddamn, we're paying them all this money. So put them out there and let, and let them play. Hmm. You know, that's the risk when you when you when you go down the central contract route. You just got to make sure your your decisions are um, are are more right than wrong in terms of picking someone who's definitely a, a step above um, the competitors. I don't think the system is that bad. I just I just think maybe sometimes um, it's a very safe system. So IRFU funding is great. Um, you know, no one's going to go bankrupt, which is brilliant. Uh, but it's not a real market. It's not. It's not competitive market because everyone wants to stay here. All the players want to stay here, mm. and you don't get that natural. So Jerome kind of leave in New Zealand, whatever four years ago. John Afoa leaving, uh, you know, New Zealand ten years ago opened up an opportunity for, for someone else. Mm. Where we kind of, um, yeah, there's no real exit point for us. It's very, 
it's it, it, there's a, it's very stable, which is great, but it makes it hard for those young players to get through. Is the system yeah. out of date? Though? I, sorry, Hugh, can I just make one point on that in terms of like the system? It, it looks great and all that, but yeah. just on the Gavin Coombs point, I would have seen Gavin Coombs play maybe three times for your monsters in the All Ireland League, and you could see he was a big lad. He had uh, talent. There was no question. But I have to say, he didn't stand out for me in the games that I saw. Um, if I was asked maybe two years ago when I saw him play in those games, would he have the impact that he has had for Munster? I would have said no. Whereas, you know, some of these guys, the minute I saw, I saw Ryan Baird play uh, twice uh, for Trinity about two years ago. And the minute I saw him, I said, oh, geez, this guy destined for the big time. Definitely has it. Coombs didn't impact me on this, or Coombs didn't impact me on the same way. So what has happened? He has been exposed to a lot of regular rugby, a lot of quality rugby, I should say. And he's got a number, he's got a run of games, he's got a number of games. And because he had sort of good basic talent, he's taken off. But I think we have a lot of players in that category who never get that consistent run of games. They get one, then they don't play for three or four weeks. Then they, they're struggling because they haven't played. They try too hard. Then they get dropped into a monster team that maybe um, seven or eight of the better players are missing. Um, whereas Coombs has been lucky. A lot of the games he's had has been in the stronger side. And he's, his growth and his uh, development in the last 12 months has been phenomenal. And I think there are players in that layer underneath him that if they were given that same consistency, that they could they could make that leap just as easily. Um, like Jack Crowley is one of them who, uh, just unfortunately, because of the pandemic, these young fellas have had no rugby in the last 12 months. I think he's a guy, if he got seven or eight games in a row, he could really jump up to the next level. Uh, and Coons, for me, is the ultimate example of that. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And and I guess the system overall, as, 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 as Birch says, like it ticks an awful lot of boxes. It's very safe. Nobody's going to go bankrupt and all that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the system is working or that it's, it's fit for purpose in terms of getting the maximum return of what we have here, which is four professional sides. A lot of players trying to fit into that. And ultimately... You know, each of those provinces trying to fit into the Irish team. Well, I was I was actually talking to Birch about this over the weekend, but like certainly in the Munster one, if you go back to what Donald was saying, it's a little clearer in other places. But like as far as I know, and Birch will know a bit better, guys to be handled contracts and recruitment and retention in Leinster. I think Johnny Petrie does it in Ulster. Gareth Fitzgerald certainly used to do it in Munster. I don't think the new CEO in Munster necessarily is that is maybe part of his mandate first and foremost. So you kind of straight away with Munster, like obviously with this talk of Stephen Larkham last night, potentially leaving. And obviously Raj was talked about a lot over the weekend, but I mean, to me, it's almost seems like the recruitment and retention and also like the flow of players into the academy prior to prior to academy age and the flow of players from academy into the senior squad married up with that recruitment and retention role so that you can create this certainly medium to long, to potentially long-term uh, holistic kind of succession plan 
it's kind of almost mind blowing that that that's not in place really. Um, and I would nearly think a job, a position like that, you want to call it a director of rugby, but uh, it's nearly a director of rugby operations, and that it, it's not just solely to do with the the first team. I, I would actually think that's a, a more pressing concern than than any of the first team coaches or or some of the the tactical issues we've talked about around the first team. I would think in the in the medium term getting that kind of joined up thinking across these different strands of the organization is, is actually, I would say the, the, the most pressing thing to address within the provinces. Certainly within Munster anyway, when we've been talking about their relative malaise uh, over the mm. last few weeks, maybe it seems a little more so, defined in the other provinces. Fiona, maybe more so Munster really at the moment, just by virtue of the situation that they find themselves in Leinster, you know, have this feeder system that works very well. And, and certainly you're looking at the Leinster squad and you're thinking there's nothing needs to be done there. It seems to be working very well for them, but they're unique in the country and that they have this school system flowing into the academy system, flowing into the senior squad that Munster doesn't have, that Ulster certainly doesn't have to the same degree and McConnacht doesn't have as well. So this is, it's not really a Leinster issue at the moment. It's the rest of the country. No, but I think you could potentially use Leinster as some sort of model, taking out the school systems. It's like they've branched out further than the school systems and you have players coming through the clubs um, and then when they're brought into the academy, they're brought into senior training. Lancaster's down training with them and they're brought in. So that progression just keeps coming through. Like they're not just brought in if someone's injured, they're consistently brought in for training and things like that. So the standard's higher. I think a lot depends on the academies um, and where the feeders are coming from the academies. So yeah, Leinster have the schools and the clubs. Down in Munster, it's not so clear or Ulster. Um, while I do think Ulster have developed some, some of their key back players from their academy, their forwards have probably haven't stepped forward in, in the manner that they would have hoped. And then Connacht kind of taken more from other provinces, which is fine. I think that movement of players within the provinces is fine once the identity of each of the provinces isn't lost. But yeah, I think uh, Wes hit it on the head there. Having some sort of director of rugby long-term role as opposed to the coaches having to oversee it, I, I think would be important going forward. Um, that they're looking five, ten years down the line as opposed to just champion, ch- Champions Cup this year. Um, yeah, because coaching by its very nature is, is very short-term driven. It's results business. You know, Andy Farrell is the same. I mean, you saw it in the Six Nations as well. He went all out to beat Italy because he had to beat Italy, right? I mean, it's, it's, that's their primary focus is, is the next game. He, and he would expect then players to be ready to step up to the squad as, as he would need them because they should have come through that in the academy. And I just don't see that overall picture happening in a lot of the provinces that, that we see in Leinster. But I, I, I think it's just organically grown in Leinster as opposed to anyone having a specific role to oversee it. But then you can look back at like development officers in certain areas. You can go right down to grassroots where these players are coming from. Obviously, West Cork have done a huge amount over the years. Um, but obviously that needs to spread out amongst the whole province and ensuring the right people and numbers on the ground is really important. What do you think, Birch? Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's grown organically in, in Leinster. Um, but I, and I think it's too easy to say uh, they have the private schools and they have the, um, you know, the, the population, etc. And I agree that that is part of it. But if you look at, you know, their CEO is the most experienced CEO in, in Irish. He's been there since the, the start of professionalism. So that's a great help. He knows, he knows the business uh, inside out. He's been dealing with the dire few and he's been dealing with ERC and Pro 14 for the last 20 years. You know, they've brought in Guy Easterby uh, in a position where he just looks after the contracts, right? So contract succession planning. And even though, you know, they have a lot of talent, they have a lot of talent who would be highly sought after elsewhere. Um, they, 
they very rarely lose someone that they want to keep. Okay, and and there's very rarely any nonsense in the press about you know um, so and so demands uh, uh, is is about to walk. It's done quietly. It's done in a in a in a in a nice uh, steady way without affecting players' performances, and and it's all put to bed. They regularly announce 25 signings, you know, on one day, which has been done over three or four months. So the contractual part of it. It seems to be a lot smoother than it is in other provinces, and they have a guy responsible for that. And then obviously there's someone like Leo, who's there to think big picture, and to be the gap between the academy and the and the senior team. And then you have Stuart who looks after the rugby side of it. So I think, look at I I know they have the best the best um, resources, but also they have seemed to create a system that works well for them. And also the sub academy, if I'm I think they're the only province who have a sub academy where they can spend an extra year testing players. See if they're going to step up. So they make a decision at twenty, whereas everyone else has to make a decision at eighteen, and that's that's obviously an advantage to them. But they have they put that in place. Um, so I would say I would say that yeah, I, I think in fairness, you know, Tim Honor looks after the negotiations in Connacht, um, Bryn Cunningham and, and John Petrie do it in 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 Ulster, and you know, and obviously now we're not really hundred percent sure who does it. We don't need to know. We just need to, it needs to basically make sense financially. They spend the money they have wisely. And they have a very strong succession plan. And Donald goes back to what you were saying last week as well. I guess, you know, some of the problems highlighted behind the scenes at Munster, you know, you have the two um, forms of the branch between Cork and Limerick really just splitting the base. It does seem like, you know, structurally Munster could do an awful lot better to get their house in order. Um, if you follow me without being disrespectful. Yeah, well, you see, they had, they had the director of rugby structure there with Razzy Erasmus. That was his job. He was director of rugby. You know, Jacques Ninaber underneath him was really, who is now the South African head coach. Mm-hmm. He was the coach underneath him. Anthony Foley, Lord rest him, had gone back to being the forwards coach at that stage. And he was back sort of doing what he did best. So that, and, and Razzy was the guy who was doing all the recruitment, uh, who was doing all the, the, the contracts and all that. So he had that holistic view. There was a view in Munster that I would have supported a number of years ago um, when Declan Kidney finished with Ireland, that Munster should have brought him back in as a director of rugby, overseeing all that. I mean, Declan, by by his own admission, uh, he was never the most innovative coach, but he was a brilliant man-manager. And, you know, uh, I know the players over the years would have gone to Declan and say, look, our attack is crap. We need when Tony McGahan was there. It was the players' demand that, that Tony McGahan be given an increased role, let's say, around the attacking elements. Declan had the capacity to step back and accept that and look at the wider picture. I think Kidney would have been a brilliant director of rugby for Munster because he knows the school system inside out, remember. He was, uh, he was an Irish schools coach. He was pres coach that won a number of schools cup. So he was well got in that area as well. He would, come, he would have come back from Ireland as a Grand Slam winning coach. Um, so he would have been the ideal guy. But Munster just couldn't grasp it at the time. They lost an opportunity there, in my view. Then, when Razi went back to South Africa, I think because of financial issues, they sort of, they didn't replace him with a director of rugby. Johan van Graan came in, but in effect, he was half head coach and half director of rugby. And then Gareth Fitzgerald, Lord Restum, got ill, and, and that whole area has fallen down. So Wes is right. There is there's a total void there. 
So that's at the top of the professional level. And then there are issues underneath which have to be addressed as well. So look, it's not a short-term fix, but I think Munster, they were going down the right road when they had Erasmus in that position, but they, they sort of missed a trick that they didn't replace a like with like when he went back to South Africa. Did you say, Wes, that Stephen Larkin was thinking about leaving? Yeah, well, that's the story that emerged yesterday, that he's a year left in the contract, but there's potentially interest from the from the Waratahs. I, I heard it yesterday afternoon off someone, and, and then I saw it in, in the Irish Independent, I think, last night. Um, look, it, it adds to a perception of a bit of turmoil in light of recent events, but if he leaves, he leaves. You know what I mean? Would be my take on it, to be honest with you. I, I, I don't think maybe we've seen what we thought we'd see from him. Um I think there's two excellent candidates that have come up through the province who probably aren't going to be interested in an assistant coach's role in the obvious one everyone will mention is Raj, but I think Mike Prendergast would be a fantastic addition as well. Um, I would say run Some interview Paddy's Raj power. game on, on Friday night, uh, um, Wes, wasn't it? Like after the Rochelle game. I, got, I mean, how many retweets, whatever, and just because he was so matter-of-fact and frank and honest and Brilliant Got a deal with the Fijians coming back late. The, uh, yeah, yeah. The 40, the 40 grand a month probably doesn't help with that at all with the Fijians, in fairness, salary. <laughs> but, you know, um, <laughs> like, I would say in the pa- in a pandemic with the financial constraints that are there, we've seen the IRFU cutting more non-playing staff this morning. As a PR story, and because of the financial benefits of it, if Stephen Larkham leaves... I would bet you Noel McNamara will become the back scotch in Munster. Really? I, I, it makes sense. They'll trumpet it as someone that came through the system. They won't have to pay him as much as someone like Stephen Larkham. It, it would be someone of that profile rather than another person like Stephen Larkham. Donald, do you know what we've been talking about Munster's identity, right? You know, the, the issue of identity now in respect of the team that won the two Heineken Cups, the team with Donegal Callaghan, Raj, Paul O'Connell, all the great Munster players, David Wallace of the years, and identity, and Munster knew what they stood for, and they were a world-renowned, recognised brand. And I'm looking at Paul O'Connell and the job he's done in a very short space of time with the Irish squad in terms of the line-out and the forwards. I'm looking at Ronan O'Gara, who's producing some brilliant rugby and is now a seasoned, worldwide experienced coach, and Mike Prendergast. There are three guys who know exactly what Munster identity is, who know exactly what it is to play for Munster, and are coaching at the very top level. I mean, I was thinking to myself, Christ, imagine if Munster had those three guys move in as their new coaching ticket now and what they could do and what they could achieve for Irish rugby and for Munster mm. rugby. That's the, that's the golden ticket, but it's also the easy solution. I mean, I remember Cork a number of years ago, I think it was it Jimmy Barry Murphy, Tom Cashman and uh, Tony O'Sullivan they brought in as this, you know, the dream team. But, you know, it doesn't always work like that. The bottom line is you could have Graham Henry, Steve Hansen, Razzie Erasmus, put them all in there unless you get the foundations right and unless you get the pathways working towards the top team it's not going to change and O'Gara knows that better than ever I mean you know we've spoken about him on this on this program before and you know I, I, I think there's a guy who has taken the hard route he could have been involved with Munster years ago if he wanted to but no I mean he's gone away he's educating himself he's exposing himself to different experiences Ronan O'Gara will come back to Ireland when it's the right time for Ronan O'Gara to do so. Not because Munster have a crisis here or now, or not because there's a vacancy within the Irish setup or in Leinster or whatever. He will pick his moment. He's 
Uh, I hadn't seen a whole lot of La Rochelle this year because obviously we don't see the top 14 isn't on Sky anymore. Um, but, uh, I mean, just... You could see O'Gara's stamp all over La Rochelle on Friday night. They had the brilliance. They had the individual brilliance. They had guys who can offload. Brilliant support lines, brilliant running lines. But you talk about pragmatism. Somebody mentioned pragmatism there earlier. I mean, I, I just wrote it down on the basis. I, I thought La Rochelle were brilliantly pragmatic. They managed the game well. They kicked when they needed to. They shut the game down when they needed to. I mean, when you looked at it, that's not a brilliant Gloucester team. And they didn't put them away. So, you know, I'm not quite sure what level they're at. Uh, are they good enough to win a Champions Cup? Maybe, maybe not. But of more importance is I think you could see O'Gara's stamp all over that team. Um, and he will come back to Ireland. There's no question about that. But he'll come back for the right job for him, number one. And secondly, from, from my own conversations with him over the years, um, it's clear to me he's not obsessed by titles. So if he thinks his best role is as, if, he, if, if what he does best is as a backs coach, and if that doesn't mean he's the head coach and he's labelled assistant coach, then, you know, so be it. But uh, you see, people forget in La Rochelle, John O'Gibbs is in there as director of rugby. So I can imagine... He's taking a lot of the, the peripheral stuff, I would imagine, away from Ronan. So again, it's about getting the setup within your own, uh, within your own um, club right. Um, there's no question he's done a brilliant job. There's no question Paul O'Connell has done a, a fantastic job with the Irish forwards. But that doesn't mean you love them back into Munster overnight and all of a sudden, hey, presto, all the problems are solved. Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. Look, we, we, we don't have a lot of time left, so uh, Fiona, I want to talk about the Six Nations and Ireland kicking off their campaign against Wales this weekend. I have to say, look, in one respect, obviously, it's great that the championship is going ahead, given that it was cancelled because of the pandemic. But I watched the highlights of the England game and watched a good bit of the France uh, annihilation of Wales at the weekend, and I was scratching my head and was going to myself, like, we're trying to promote the game of women's rugby in this country and certainly around um, the Six Nations Championship as well. But uh, what's the point of England going to go out and absolutely annihilate Scotland? And they did so without everyone coming out of third gear. France go out and they annihilate Wales again this weekend. And I kind of say to myself, well, what's, what's the point in all this? Like, what are we doing here? Yeah, look, I, I do believe the games need to be more competitive. How we make them more competitive, again, is back to that long-term plan and where we're at. Like, England are fully professional, France are semi-professional, but this has been a problem for a number of years, not just since England have gone professional. Yes, they have more numbers in. Their structures are way better from the academy. They've under-20s um, and the coaches at every level as well. And I suppose that's where the other countries need to get to. Um, with France, there's still that level of inconsistency like they drew with Scotland last year. But when you see the form that they were in last weekend against Wales, you just think it's ominous of where it's going. And you can't see anything bar France, England in that one-two playoff. And it's just where Ireland sit next. I think Ireland certainly should aim to be best of the rest um, and that they should be pushing for that third-place finish. They've spoken a lot about the amount of training they've had. They've had 20 camps and there's three-day camps. So that's great. But we haven't seen them play since last October. Um, yes, we saw an improvement last year in 2020. It's whether they continue that and keep improving, whether they're actually going to put a dent at all in playing against England or, or France, because France are in their pools. So. I, saw, I saw even McDermott as well. I mean, not to, not to pick up on this, and I don't want to highlight it, 
she was quoted this week as saying, look, she's confident that Ireland can cause uh, upsets against the big team. And I, I was kind of saying to myself, right, is, is that just confidence speak because they have to think like that, however unrealistic it is? Or, or is it realistic that Ireland can, can actually go and beat France or England this year? Um, if France don't turn up, it's always there, as I said, they drew with Scotland last year. But no, they're operating on a different level. Like if you saw from set piece to the attack and claim plan and France's defence was outstanding last week. It's probably the best that I've ever seen it. But on the flip side, that Wales were so disappointing. Um, like they've had their own upheaval. They've had a new coach who's only in four months. Uh, they lost their skills coach, Rachel Taylor, there about a month ago. But all these players are playing premiership rugby week in, week out. And you just didn't see it on the pitch at all. And they were really, really poor. It's whether they can turn anything around in a week um, to see them improve. But based on last year's results and performance, I would say Ireland are, will, will do very well against them. Yeah, and that was a French team as well, without Menagerie in the back row. Sophie and I didn't start as well. You know, there was a couple of players I wasn't overly familiar with, but um, they seem to be bringing through an awful lot of young, talented players. The likes of those, if you like, French women legends over the last few years can't get near the team at the moment, which I think speaks volumes for the strength and depth they're producing as well. Yeah, and again, back to that structure, you know, their clubs are really strong. They've been playing their, their club competitions and they have a really strong sevens program as well. And that's completely separate now. That's where Menage is and, and Corsana is. She's injured. Um, mm. So they're away at the moment. So this is very much a 15 squad for the Six Nations. I'm probably looking towards the World Cup as well. Um, but yeah, there was lots of new players. Uh, in there, even Perrineau playing at 10. I haven't seen a huge amount of her at 10. Rowe playing at 8. Uh, again, haven't seen a huge amount of her, and they, they were phenomenal. So they definitely have the player base there that probably Ireland doesn't have. But um, I don't know how we're going to close that gap again. I think it's back to those structures. Like, if you think about it, we have no schoolgirls rugby here. We've no under-20s rugby here. No. Um, we're relying on an AIL that probably hasn't been the standard that it's at should be asked. The RFU have certainly invested in it. It was supposed to be this year where they were looking to invest fully in it. Um, but we obviously, COVID didn't see that. And then the Interpros, I don't see, think serve their purpose that it's that step up between club to international. The gap is still too big. Isn't it an awful pity though, Fiona? I mean, I must say, looking, I was looking for the pictures of the weekend, you know, at a time when the Women's Six Nations is no standalone. Obviously, it was running parallel with the under-20s and the senior Six Nations for so long. They get their own slot, but look brilliant. And all of a sudden, then I see Ireland are playing at the same time as Leinster and, and Exeter. Uh, it's just unfortunate, really, because, um, you know, I think if you had that slot on your own, you'd attract a, a big audience. But, you know, Leinster-Exeter quarterfinal of the, the, the Champions Cup, it's, it's, it's a pity. Yeah, the only benefit is it's that the women's game is on free to air. So hopefully we'll get eyes on it in the sense of, you know, people that wouldn't necessarily have BT watch Champions Cup. But yeah, look, I'm a fan of moving it away from the men's Six Nations to its own slot. But when you're up against Champions Cup, it's always going to be difficult to get that, I suppose, exposure and visibility that the game needs. So we won't do any prep is what you're saying because nobody will be watching Fiona this weekend, huh? No, it's on RT. There'll be loads watching. <laughs> okay, listen, lads, um, we'll leave it there. Um, thanks so much for your time to Fiona as well. Ireland uh, taking on Wales this weekend live on RT television as well. Uh, Leinster take on Exeter, as we mentioned, and we'll uh, review the game next week. Uh, to Wes, to Bernard, Donald and Fiona, thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week.